the Protect Your Neck Podcast. Live MMA chat number five. Early leans for May 9th, leg locks in MMA, and much more. Strap in. Hot air hangs like a dead man from a white oak tree. People sitting on porches thinking how things used to be. Dark night. It's a dark night. Dark night. It's a dark night. All right, what's going on, everybody? Uh, Dan Tom here, MMA Junkie Analyst for the YouTube live stream. Thank you guys for joining, subscribing as people pile in. I will be doing the uh, obligatory. Stumble upon my words as I share the link in Twitter, which you can follow, of course, at DanTomMMA to get at me there. Any questions or anything like that, obviously, questions that are going to be uh, getting the priority today are those in this here chat. We're going to be covering topics, UFC 249, is it still? Either way, May 9th, we're going to talk about that super card. Um, we're going to talk about that super card that's going down. We're going to give some early leans as far as that matchup. I know the last time I came on here to do early leans, for the, I don't know what iteration of UFC 249 it was. It, of course, got canceled. Um, not really going to dive back into that at all, but I will touch on just kind of the, the fallout from last week because there was the fallout from the news and there's kind of the fallout from, you know, um, quote one of my favorite Las Vegas hardcore bands, The Great Divide, that kind of came from that news. And, and that definitely was a topic in its own. Definitely touch briefly on that. Again, not trying to preach or get divisive. I am no authority, nor is that my interest on this here show, uh, whether it's the chat or the Protect Your Neck podcast, which you can subscribe to on fr- uh, for free. Uh, I'll work on archiving old episodes up, but as you can see, we got plenty of top five episodes on the channel. I'm going to have some corrections and omissions, if you will, uh, as far as that goes. But uh, we'll actually knock those off at the top. We'll also be getting into the Ronda Rousey documentary. Um, some thoughts on that. That's that's over there on Netflix. Um, may or may not talk some uh, real quick. Um, uh, Shaq's recent interview with Ariel Helwani and the statement of uh, Prime Bull Will. And uh, it'll be my abandoned stepchild this week, and we'll we'll give it some love. And I'll get you some, some, some recs uh, for next week. So as I get back here on the chat. Cool. Thank you guys for joining me. All right. Um, the last top five show, as we're just going to knock off some uh, corrections on omissions for those of you who have been following. Uh, I just want to say uh, it's probably not a, a big deal. Most most people don't, you know, w- wouldn't catch this. But I kept saying Big Boss for whatever reason, and I couldn't get a Chinese Connection out, which I think is better known as, as, as Fist of Fury, Bruce Lee movie. And I'm like, did I really just get that wrong? Wow. Uh, I got to slap myself uh, for that, of course. And uh, Craig Allen, uh, who I didn't get to, uh, he, he he was chiming in for some kickboxer bar fight love. And even though I talked about kickboxer and some of the darker things that we forgot about kickboxer, right? I did not talk about the infamous bar scene. You know, it, it, it contends right up there with Jackie Chan's drunken fighting. Does it not? Does it not? Um, so that was, that was good times. Um, and, uh, also, uh, John John Rico, listener of the program, shouts to uh, at John John Rico there on Twitter. He wanted some Three Ninjas love, and uh, you know I, I wasn't being 
uh, pretentious at all. I mean, I had some hardcore stuff, but I had some fun stuff too, for sure. And uh, I loved me some Three Ninjas growing up, man. Um, although I feel like that one would be kind of problematic now. Like, what was what were those three young boys doing with the China, old Chinese guy? That was kind of weird. It was kind of, you know, I don't know if that'd be accepted these days. You know, Jesus, damn, <laughs> stay on target, stay on target. Uh, don't take anything with everything with your uh, terrible uh, personality. Okay, yeah, sorry, but I'm just saying I, I don't know how well a lot of these will age. Like, you know, I watched a lot of Mortal Kombat recently. Um, rewatched uh, a lot of Bloodsport for an article that I'm working on. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll just save these to talk more about when we do um, a series that I'm going to be kicking off uh, pretty much. Uh, I don't want to say the title yet, but I got a title for it. And essentially, it's just going to be going back for old fights, fight movies, uh, whether it's martial arts, boxing or whatever. And I'm going to be doing that. And uh, whatever iteration or format I do that in, don't worry. It, there, it will come here on YouTube. So keep subscribed to the channel. Keep sharing for more free content. Um Jackie Chan, gorgeous. I wrote that down here because I, I meant to talk about that one. That's an, a, a, one of Jackie Chan's best fight scenes at the end of that movie. Really good stuff. So go check out top five uh, fight scenes in martial arts movies I did with Blake Stevenson. Shout out at Blake Stevenson. Uh, always a fun time with that dude. And um, last thing from that has to do with actually this chat. Um, our last weekly focus here was front kicks in MMA. So uh, we went over a bunch and... I knew I was going to forget some obvious ones, and I forgot some uh, uh, Katsunori Kakuno. Uh, shout out to Benny Abs um, for uh, for reaching out. Uh, for reaching out. Uh, sorry, I'm reading a funny comment here, which I'll get to. <laughs> for reaching out with the Kakuno mention. I'm like, yeah, I totally spaced that. I, I don't know if it was Rogan that would always talk about Kakuno's front kick, like a half moon or whatever. But essentially, Kakuno would throw a front kick, and he would kind of throw it at a curved angle, and he would go liver size liver side and you know uh my favorite kick is liver kick uh, not just because i'm a southpaw and it opens up that stance but yeah even as a traditional martial artist we talked about poking with a front kick i remember um tim lane uh who worked with um what's that guy who boxed pacquiao algeri um did some kickboxing stuff uh titles himself and he would always pose to his classes he'd be like what's what's the most powerful kick someone could throw and someone's like mirko krokov head kick he's like good one you know, and someone else is like axe kick or wheel kick. Edson Barbosa, Terry Adams, like great guesses. But he's like the most powerful kick you can throw is a liver kick. Because some people have really tough chins uh, and noggins. Some people aren't that flexible. They can't go upstairs. Uh, liver is a very attainable shot. And um, you can't really train your liver for it, right? Uh, you know, they always talk about the solar plexus, getting the wind knocked out of you, getting that special spot. Can, can the muscles protect it? You know, back in the woo-woo bro science days of martial arts. But but a liver is, is a proven one. I mean, you've been hit there. You feel like you're going to crap yourself. And that's what Kakuno did, man. That's what he did. I think he even hits Eddie Alvarez with it before uh, Alvarez gets that win. That was like one of the few really good kickers Alvarez fought for a while. Um of course, not including dudes like Joaquin Hansen, who I'm going to talk about when we get to leg locks. Mr. Honky, shout out to that, Mr. Honky. How long does it take to comb your hair? Um, you know, longer these days because the more longer and unmanageable. I'm supposed to get a haircut and have a backdrop by this episode between life and male, which uh, the backdrops aren't. And I got a sweet frame, which you can't see off screen here. I got a sweet frame and some some spring clamps. I'm just waiting for uh, – I got some custom uh, backdrops and a green screen backdrop I'm going to mess around with be recording uh much better to come but yeah hopefully that doesn't mean i, I take longer to do my hair or anything <laughs> like that it it, it it looks like trash right now and it probably took me the longest to do it uh if i'm telling on myself 
Ben Cope, my man. Yep. Shout, shout out to Ben. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Benny Abs, for, for, for that for that shout on Kakuno. Okay, that uh, is it for as far as like the corrections, retractions, uh, mistakes, and uh, revisions. Oh, uh, wow. That is a long working title for that segment, right? All right. Um, topics. <clears throat> Let's start off with the UFC 249 um, fallout, I guess. Uh, obviously, you know, news is so fluid these days, and last week feels like forever ago, but of course, uh, the government stepped in, uh, and which meant that the owners at Disney and ESPN stepped in, and uh, Dana White and the UFC called the fights off. Really interesting fallout, like figuring like who and how people were getting ready. Um, like uh, I was listening to Anik and Florian pod, and John Anik was explaining like how he had like three flights or something lined up to get over to Lemoore. Um, and it was just kind of crazy, like um, – uh, the lengths that was 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 being you know uh, th- that was being uh, went to. That being said, I mean, is it that crazy? Dana White, uh, whether you agree with him or not, he's a man of his word, and he did tell us he was going to attempt it. And uh, yeah, he attempted it, man. Um, cooler heads prevailed, so hopefully this gives UFC more time to uh, to do a safer event. I know, like for example, the mentioned Anik, who I believe he's on, uh, was on. Aaron Bronstetter's uh, Q&A today or, or Coffee and Combat. I'm not sure. Shout out to Aaron, though. Um, I'm sure they'll talk more about it, about that there as well. But, uh, you know, it, it, it sounded like, you know, um, the people that, you know, were going, there, was, was, there wasn't a gun to their head. Um, it sounded like Dana White was really genuine behind the scenes with, like, messages he was sending. But, um, again, whether you are for or against this, this is a good thing. Again, I want fights to come back too, but this is a good thing, folks. I know people are going to get upset. They always get upset when you, when you tread over this topic. Now, this is like the, the the this is one of the many hot topics in politics. It's like the hot topic for us, and you know the mixed martial arts arena. You know, um, it's a hot time, of course, with with heated uh, debates. I'm not going to pretend to have answers or to be of authority, but I, what I will say, I guess, um, to try not to get too long winded here, as I usually do, is just. It was crazy to see the divide, man. Uh, people that you know you respect, or friends, colleagues, or whatever. It was just it was differences across the board, and I, I certainly felt it too. Um, I, I I tweeted something a poor attempt at humor. It was just one of those things where it's like, you know, I guess people from other parts of the United States. You know, I had some of my brothers uh, from the South chime in and be like, "Oh, it looks like what we got going down here some nights," and that's cool. I'm not judging, but for Vegas, and you know, we've had actually weird kind of. You, you could say, uh, not militia, but like none of non-official parades going down the streets. Right. And I'm not talking about like, Oh, look at all the classic cars going by. Oh, there's a Harley's today. Like, you know, just like Mad Max looking shit. Like, um, but with the political climate and, you know, I think, you know, there, there, there were, you know, the Confederate flags and the Trump flags. I'm not trying to get into that here, folks. It was just something that I, I definitely had to, to see and share, but despite my best attempts, which was a poor attempt, admittedly, it doesn't matter what your best attempts are at humor. Like I, I learned, I'm like, it really doesn't matter how you kind of post and present things because you're just going to piss people off on both sides, which is always the ironic part too. Um, not that I'm on either side. You guys, you guys know from listening to this podcast, I'm not a red team versus blue team guy in any sense. My team versus your team, Mac versus Apple. I could give two shits. Like, I don't know. I think Toyotas are pretty cool, like as far as brands go. Like, but I'm not pissing on any other cars. You know what I'm saying? Or shitting on any other cars. Like, it's not a, not really that guy. Um, so the, uh, not not trying to do that here, but it's just kind of crazy the climate we're in, and we saw that come to a head with 
kind of everything surrounding UFC 249 and all, all iterations of, of this saga, if you will. So now the delivery date is being promised for May 9th. And now obviously that's even being contested. Um, you have certain owners or people that have been cited by, uh, by, by, by Trump who have now appointed people like Dana White and other heads of other sports organizations as a kind of a task force, if you will, which has garnered a lot of news. And a lot of those people are people who have an interest as well, like Dana does and has expressed an interest similar to Dana has, I guess you could say, as far as coming back. But not everybody is is necessarily uh, has the same uh, parameters into doing so. And now we're kind of seeing that come across even before I just got on here, folks, saw something from uh, a Las Vegas publication. I don't think it was Review Journal. Forgive me if it was because I know people over there. Um, I want to give credit where it's due, but it was a Las Vegas publication and essentially, you know, our governor, which goes complete, uh, you know, opposition with our, with our, our, our mayor here, um, our governor who has been really adamant on the social distancing, which again, I'm not trying to make a political statement or say he's right. I'm right. Or anyone's right, but I'm definitely for being safe, more safer than not. Um, he's definitely been a proponent of that. And, uh, sorry, our governor's Sisolak. Um, and, uh, and so he released a statement that they are nowhere near opening. Uh, so nowhere near in comparison to May 9th. I don't know. That's a, that's kind of a broad definition, right? Because that's about three weeks roughly away. This is April 16th uh, right now. So that's, that's roughly just over three weeks away. So nowhere near in three weeks, I guess, is the question. Where does it fall between that? Because, again, if, uh, if you have this, the states on your side, um, it makes it a whole lot easier. I, don't, I doubt – that the athletic commission will push too hard. It's just the athletic commission, as much as they want to act like they're on this very, very high horse, right? Folks, they even have bosses and they even have limits to their power as well. Those limits are the government within the, uh, that they operate within, I should say. So all these things are kind of tied together. So I'm still sticking with my initial prediction, which wasn't too crazy of a prediction. Like I saw people bumping their chest for this prediction. Like it's not hard to guess like, okay, fight Island. No one was going to guess or that part of it. For sure. Granted, right? Um, Indian Reservation, I saw a lot of people guessing that. But, I mean, guessing that it was the apex. Uh, shouts to uh, Paul Crichton over on SB Nation Radio for having me. It's on there a couple weeks. And I pretty much said the UFC, um, this is probably going to be their only realistic option. I knew they had stuff in the works. I didn't know it was a fight island. And at the time of that interview, I didn't know it was Lamore, California, even for that option A or B, however you want to look at it. But it just seemed most realistic they are going to operate within their home state state that is uh you know accustomed to living to the title of which you know of the region of the wild west and, and acting accordingly is that at times right you you could dress it up and put bows and call it commissions but it's money that runs this town and it's money that still runs this town even if the mob presence isn't as strong so that's going to be my best guess uh, as far as it being may 9th i don't know that i'm not going to pretend if i do folks uh, the card that is proposed as far as May 9th, I'll give you guys some quick, quickly, and see. We've got Tony versus Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. Um, thank you all for clicking on the uh, article. Uh, Junkie repurposed it. It just seemed like a shame to waste it. I think the news of it being canceled like beat the post time by like 30 minutes. I was like, ah. You know, and I already my point of interest. I already had like a sweet point of interest video that was supposed to be evergreen up until whenever Khabib Tony did go down. Um, and that got scrapped too. Um, so it it was cool just to have something out there. And, you know, I know there's a lot of complaints like the fight's not happening, but again, kind of like the same thing. The most things y'all complain about when we look at our analytics reports the next day, guess what's up on the top three or five. Hmm. So either way, thank you. I'm not complaining. Uh, what I will complain about though, is that they are like, I am reading again, reading off the proposed 
UFC early return card for May 9th. I am upset that they're still sticking with Justin Gaethje versus Tony Ferguson. I mean, part of the reason why I picked Tony Ferguson is because Justin Gaethje, uh, his coach specifically said, we don't take fights on short notice. And he said that in such a way that it sounds like a rule. And that kind of makes sense. When you have a style where you go balls out, you need to prepare your body from conditioning, uh, sparring rounds for timing, cardiovascular. I mean, there's so much that goes into that all-out assault. You don't just need to have that crazy genetics and uh, caveman wherewithal. Uh, and I mean that in the most complimentary. Um, you know, you give him a good couple lines and he's good to go. Maybe he's good to go for a couple minutes. Rounds, maybe. But, you know, we've seen him at full camp's tire. Um, an impressive well, they're all impressive. Who am I saying? But if we had to really, you know, split hairs here in victories or defeats, as far as the impressive to not as impressive, right? Uh, spectrum goes there for Justin Gaethje. So I was kind of upset that they're, they're putting that together. And even like, you know, in subsequent interviews that I've been listening to with Gaethje, like since it's been canceled, he didn't sound like he really, uh, you know, uh, he's all that heartbroken about it not coming together. I mean, he wanted to give people hope. I'm sure he wanted to fight, uh, make a paycheck, save the day all good things that could potentially come with it um, that he was willing to risk. And again, that's his right to not judging at all. But if you listen to him, he's like, he's a fan at the end of the day too. Like he, he admits that his own words. He's like, I wanted to see Tony and Khabib uh, even saying in not so many words that that would make sense for it to be next, you know? Um, so that's going to be really interesting with the negotiating table is that of course, Tony Ferguson, cause he's a fucking madman. Again, I mean that in the most complimentary ways, Tony Ferguson, one of my favorite fighters to break down as a fighter, uh, of course, he's going to say yes. And if anything, that's kind of mind games, you know, when he's, he's still, you know, before this was announced, he's and everybody was still, you know, just in there. Post-mortem refractory period is really the only way to explain this type of MMA blue balls we're all going through. Right. Uh, Tony Ferguson is out here saying he's going to make weight still. And then he's like following up on it. You going to make weight, Justin? I mean, so, of course, Tony Ferguson's going to sign the contract and, you know. He's going to jump off. He's going to be the first to jump off the cliff and say, all right, I double dog dare you, Justin. I double dog dare you. And that's what Tony Ferguson is doing by signing that contract. Will Justin Gaethje come to the table? I, I hope he doesn't. And if he doesn't, I hope that MMA fans don't pull that thing because they will like accuse anybody of being scared, which is silly to accuse fighters of that, um, at least beyond uh, any type of realistic context. Um so anyways, but you guys don't need me to go into it. I know a lot of people and my colleagues have taken the stance and I agree with them without hearing their arguments because let's be honest. So what, what argument do you have that Tony and Khabib, the two best lightweights of this last decade should not be fighting each other. Um, and it's already been half of a decade worth of tries of them trying to get this matchup together. Let's, let's not make it another half. Let's, let's give these guys their due and not, um, not, not, Floyd Pacquiao uh, because they're not going to get paid nowhere near Floyd uh, and Pacquiao. So yeah, Henry Cejudo versus Dominic Cruz for the Bantamweight title fight. Um, again, I don't think I said it on, on that show per se. Uh, I said this on a, uh, speaking of Aaron Bronstetter's Q and a, I said it when I was a guest on his Q and a last week and it was kind of a crazy thing. And you had, anyone had any right to call me crazy or like, well, why would Dominic Cruz be the next to fight for the title? But I think I might've predicted that as well. And of course I wasn't uber serious, nor am I bumping my chest now, but basically the, the point being was the point that I presented then when I presented that option, which is you thought, I mean, let's be honest on our regular day, rankings don't matter. You're really thinking the COVID-19 epidemic 
when the UFC is sending out emails like, hey, you know anyone that wants to fight for the UFC? Like when they're that desperate, you really think that the greatest bantamweight of all time, you heard me, he was snubbed. I'm not, don't, don't make me bring back that argument. He was uh, snubbed on this fighter of the decade talk. Not that he should have been it, but he should have got some honorable mention talk. Um, you really you think it's crazy that the best bantamweight of all time is going to get a title shot? But his last fight was off of a loss. Okay, again, pre-COVID-19 time, um, people were getting title shots off of a loss. You know, it's splattered, splattered throughout the last decade. Go look up uh, guys, you know, Alexander Gustafson, Yoel Romero. I mean, recent to a few years ago and so on and so forth. I mean, well, you know, he was uh, it was back in 2016. Sure, sure. I mean, we just hit 2020 and it was at literally the tail end of 2016. But nevertheless, even if you give – You'll be technical about it. That's still like three plus years. It's pretty ridiculous, right? Um, I'm not saying it's not ridiculous. I'm just saying it's kind of ridiculous for us to be surprised at this point. Um, you know, fucking Chong Lee could could uh, you know, come to fruition out of nowhere, and the UFC could give him a middleweight title shot. Uh, you know, but the Kumite was fought at heavyweight. Listen, half those dudes were like under middleweight. Let's be honest. Chong Lee was a pretty short dude. Uh, they make him look menacing, but uh, I don't think he was that tall. What is the height? Where's James Lynch when I need him? Uh, a little blood sport talk there. All right, Amanda Nunez. Oh, uh, who, am I, who am I leaning toward to that one? You know what, man? Um, it's hard not to say to, uh, easily. It's easy to say Sahuda's going to be favored, and it's going to be hard for me to tell you that as an analyst, unbiasedly, it's hard not to lean toward him. But if Dominic Cruz can still move the way he moves uh the guy's always had a had a chin um even on a bad night and cody garbrandt's best night and say what you will about cody garbrandt and his trajectory should, since the guy still hits hard and you can't take that away he's one of the hardest hitting uh fastest bantamweights i don't think Sahudo has that speed or power or technique despite the improvements so you know in theory if he you know can still take the shots and he can still move in some semblance the way dominic cruz can move um could I see him outpointing perhaps like to, you know, a, a controversial close competitive decision? Sure. I could definitely see that Cruz is very hard to take down. Um, and his timing was just amazing on takedowns, but wrestling defensively and offensively, especially offensively tends to go as, as guys get older. So I don't know how much you count on that. Um, so I'm going to be rooting for Dominic Cruz if that fight happens, but you can't not lean toward Henry Cejudo. Um, and again, I haven't broken this broken this fight down, so I reserve the right to change my pick. Amanda Nunes versus Felicia Spencer. You know I love me some, some Felicia Spencer. Um, man, hot take. Uh, I think Amanda Nunes' fights are two deceptively dangerous ones that I'm not saying she will lose. She will and should be favored in, and I may and probably will pick her. But they are very deceptive fights um, if she were to go – if she's, you know, um, to fight uh, – Sorry, what was the other one top of my head? Maybe not 135. I'm sorry. Uh, Felicia Spencer, as far as that goes, is a really deceptive fight uh, for Amanda Nunes. Felicia Spencer, again, she seems like she kind of just has that durability. And when girls have physicality, it, it still speaks loudly. Uh, and I'm not uh, saying that as a negative toward women or women mixed martial artists, but there is a, a bigger chasm, you know, and it's not a sexist thing. You know, us men, we have our own saying in regards to this, you know, that, this is what separates the men's from the boys. Or this is what's going to separate the men from the boys. And there is a certain bit of that. And, you know, I've spoken to female athletes, both fighters and non-fighters. There are certain girls that just have a genetic a composition and that, that just speaks loudly. And, of course, that applies to in the male side of it. 
but I feel like it almost speaks louder with the female side of things. Uh, whether you want to say that's biological or environmental reasons is the why we as to why the sample size is so small. And we act the way, the way we do. That's up to you. I'm not trying to argue these, these hot topics, but I am trying to talk about them in relevance and context of mixed martial arts. And uh, the girl can take a shot and she hustles and she gets after it. I mean, one of the best things, uh, and I don't have extensive um, experience coaching or coaching grappling, but especially if you're coaching grappling, one of the best things you can ask, whether it's a kid, whether it's an adult, whether it's a novice, or whether it's a seasoned pro or whatever that definition equivalent you want to put as far as within the grappling realm, uh, apologies for the dogs there, the best thing you can do is, uh, or the best thing you can look for is have someone who gets after it. You want someone who gets after things. Um, that, that's honestly the best thing, you know. We've seen high level, how many, how many, how many high-level fighters have you seen? You know, they're having an off night and then they kind of fall apart or they need everything to go perfect. Uh, Felicia Spencer doesn't seem like she needs that. It seems like she gets after in every sense of the word. Um, so I think that's a very dangerous matchup. I think Felicia Spencer is going to be a live dog at whatever it's lined. But Amanda Nunes will deservedly be the favorite. Um, I'll probably pick her and obviously got to lean toward her now. But again, not saying that I'm going to pick Spencer here, but she is a live dog. And don't be surprised if either A, you see her name in, in my official prediction. Uh, it's not a cheeky upset uh, if, that, if it makes it that far. Again, leaning toward Nunez, gun in my head, that's the pick here. But more importantly, forget what I say. Don't be surprised if she can win that fight. Um, especially if Amanda Nunez, you know, sleeps on her, you know, uh, is sleeping on her for whatever reason. Francis Ngannou versus Yair Rosenstruck. Rosenstruck, man, uh, I, I, he is just a guy. I just I'm afraid to bet against right now because he just don't know, right? And and he's really got that surprise factor. Like again, live dog. I uh, gotta imagine he's gonna be the dog as he. I don't have the original line in my head, sorry, but uh, yeah, you're Rosenstruck. Uh, I got I gotta lean toward Francis Ngannou though, uh, gun of the head, right? Um, sure, there's a bit of a extreme couture bias. My, my dude Eric Nixick over there has been training with Ngannou, who looks like quarantine is just not affecting his physique one bit. I don't know if anything will affect that. Like a nuclear Holocaust probably won't affect that man's physique. You know, he comes with you be like, I haven't eaten protein in three months. Like Ngano, your bicep is still bigger than my head. And I have a big head. Uh anyways, but uh I gotta lean toward Ngano there. Anthony Pettis versus Donald Cerrone remake. I told you with all the craziness, it's just like the, that fight got booked. Um the first one was so awesome the build up and the fight itself. Um you know what? I, I I think Pettis would make it open as a slight favorite, but you, it, it, I think people think I'm a Pettis fanboy with the amount of times I pick him and then just look fucking dead wrong at the times I actually do pick him. Because I don't pick him every time, folks, but when I do, it's usually because there's like a pretty good case where I'm like, listen, I get why you're all fading him. I came in fading him too, but, and I'll actually point to like hardline facts. And then Pettis will go in there and like play to every stereotype that's that's forecast or you know put upon him and proving them right. <laughs> Not hating on Anthony Pettis there, but uh, I could see Anthony Pettis being open as a slight favorite. I don't have maybe there's some lines on some houses. I'm, I'm sorry, folks, I don't have them, but you want my opinion anyways, right? I guess that's why you're here. Um, but I'll go for Donald Cerrone as uh, my initial lean to that to survive whatever the Pettis storm is and pull away for a decision win that gets him back on his feet. And it's, uh, you know, a veteran falling, uh, you know, on that downslope, a uh, feel-good matchup. Uh, for, as, for as feel-good as you can feel good, this part of the sport for winners and losers at that point in their career. 
Um, they shake hands, have a good moment, and you see Cerrone get a decision victory is my guess. Jeremy Stevens versus Calvin Cater. You know I'm a big uh, Jeremy Stevens fan. Uh, I, I defend this guy and pick him when most people don't. Um, prove me right some of those times. Prove me wrong other others, but it doesn't matter. He is still a guy who can't help uh, love but watch. Dude, made his, dude the, Jeremy Stevens made his UFC debut and Chuck Liddell was still champion. Granted, that was UFC 76 where Chuck Liddell actually lost the title to the Rampage later on that night. Excuse me. Where Stevens, I believe, fought Dan Thomas. But anyways, uh, as we've seen over the years, it's like it's like an IQ test when you fight Jeremy Stevens. Are you going to fight smart or are you not? And fight smart in a stick-and-move sort of way, as we saw a younger Hanato Moikano do successfully. I think Calvin Cater Cater's able to do it as well. However, when Calvin Cater fought uh, Hanato Moikano, I was there in Brooklyn at UFC 223. We saw Moikano uh, really you know, capitalize on that boxing-centric stance of Calvin Cater and the weight distribution more specifically with the leg kicks. So Jeremy Stevens, who has underrated leg kicks, and he really targets those calves, I mean – just go watch the Gilbert Melendez fight. Um, does he do that? So J- Jeremy Stevens, who I imagine is going to be lined as a dog, is going to be a live one. But even though I love Jeremy Stevens, I, I got to say my lean's got to be within the, you know, the New England cartel, Calvin Cater. Um, Fabricio Verdum, Alexi Olenek, that's going to be an interesting one for submission-wise. But, you know, you got to go with for Verdum, even though he's going to be coming out of a massive layoff. Um, yeah, but I'm a fan of Alexi Sexy Olenek. Uh, how can you not be right? Guy looks like he's like him and Dan Kelly are like the most like guys who look like are they gonna make it to their walk? Like forget that they're like old and riggedy looking like like Dan Kelly's like knee. I was like, dude, is this thing gonna last for the walkout? Like I remember when he got booked for that uh, Melbourne Stadium, and I was like, dude, or I think it was in Melbourne, but like if for UFC one ninety eight. Um, but yeah, I was just like. Oh my gosh, like is Dan Kelly gonna make the walk and is Mark Hunt gonna gas during the walk? Like that was the question of the night. <laughs> Just kidding. I love both those guys, by the way. As I'm, as I'm taking shots on beloved Australia's own beloved there. Um, Greg Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro. I gotta lean toward Yagen. Yagen. The guys from uh where, where's he from? Uh Suriname. Oh, two Suriname guys, right? Because Rosenstruck Suriname as well. Suriname in the house. Dude, if 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 Yagen. Who is a Suriname guy who hangs out in New England? He's a janitor, but he's wicked smart, yo. I love that. Like Jorgen DeCastro went to Australia when he got that knockout win over uh, Tafa, and he had like the principal in his corner. Like you know, like if if Jorgen, uh, you know, for however long he ends up going back to work there. Um, props on him if he does or doesn't. No judgment. Uh, not not making any any statement about that. But I'm just saying, like for as long as he has that job now, right? Like, if he's like goes to the prince and goes, hey, hey, I need, a, I need, I need this day off uh, for my kid's birthday or something. Like, you, that principal is like never gonna say no to that guy. Like, you took me across the world to be on a UFC stage for like an unbelievable experience of a live UFC event. Probably the dude's first live event, and he gets to witness like him dead in a dude right before his eyes. Like, you can have whatever day off you want, Jorgen. Um, and that's not. Uh, Greg Hardy hate who apparently grappled with Shaq and uh, their friends, which uh, doesn't surprise me if I get to my opinion <laughs> on Shaq. And I'm not going to jump on the shade on casting shade on Greg Hardy. Good on him uh, for staying with something and, and trying to prove himself, taking his knocks um, for whatever that's worth. I don't know. I'm just trying not to be a hater, folks. Michelle Waterson versus Carla Esparza. Uh, like, who do I like in that fight? Wow. Um, 
if Asparza uh, doesn't get hit with anything too opportunistic early, um, I think she can uh, get a uh, split decision, uh, wrestle a split decision out and, and use her underrated stand-up to end her space. I got to imagine she's going to be the underdog. I don't think it should be by a lot, but Carla Esparza, that would be, uh, especially if she's the dog, that's going to be a dog or pass, whether or not you pick her or not. Ronaldo Souza, Uriah Hall, that's an interesting one, man. You know, Uriah Hall's got the camp change going on. Is he Was he down at, like, South Florida or is he at Fortis? Um, I think he's down at Fortis. If he's down at Fortis, that, that's good and all, but Ronaldo Souza is really a specialist, man, really uh, – you know, does he get in? Does he get the opportunistic knockout? I don't know. I got a lean Souza gun in my head, but Uriah Hall, I mean, would you really be that surprised if he were to stop Souza? Remember when he gave Musasi his first TKO loss in Japan? Sunday Luke versus Nico Price. I mean, that's got fun written all over it. Got a lean toward Luke, but how do you not love Nico Price? I mean, I always got to root for that guy kind of secretly. Not secretly, but you know what I mean? Like, even if I'm not picking him, like part of me still going to be rooting for Nico Price. And, and you, 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 you'd be damn sure I'm not going to miss one of his fights. Charles Boston Strong Rosa, yo yo yo, this is mental from Boston, Mass. Against Bryce Mitchell, wow, battle of fucking accents right there, and submissions and fucking crazy accents going left and right. Um, Bryce Mitchell keeps surprising me. I don't want to pick against him, uh, but uh, I got to go with, with with Charles Rosa there. All right, that was a preview. Probably went longer than I thought. I'm already at 32 minutes, and I didn't even talk. This will be a, a longer, uh, a bit of a longer episode. Uh, this one, um, Spencer is certain ben, Benny Abs. Spencer is certainly the best grappler Nunes has fought since Tate. I don't have her record in front of me, Ben, but that's that's very fair. I mean, especially again, um, it's not you know, oh well, Spencer hasn't submitted this person or that person. It's not necessarily about that. For one, because featherweight's such a low sample size for everything negative you can say about it. You also have to be careful and realize the opposite side to that coin, um, which again. It's what you're going to get with a negative sample size, but even within the men's sample size, meaning uh, if somebody's just good at doing what they're good at doing, it can get you pretty damn far. I mean, look at Ben Askren's career, right? Um, I don't even want to say, you know, Khabib because I just I think he's more rounded than he's than his critics give him credit for. But let's just say what what the unfair critics will say about Khabib. He only does one thing and he's capable of nothing else. Um even if that were true, which it's not, I mean, again, if you're really good at these one things and you really can, uh, and I'm not talking about just Ronda Rousey, you know, doing the arm bar, which again, kind of to the point, whether you like Rousey or not, she got pretty damn far with that one technique. Uh, Spencer's not so much a one technique gal, but she has a process. It's a clear process. Uh, close the distance when you get too close to her, if her back's to the fence, or she's pushing you to the fence and then she's getting after her takedowns there. And even if she's not able to get any traditional wrestling takedowns, uh, she'll even do, you know, um, like almost like half card dives to create the scramble like she did with uh, Megan Anderson, which was really ballsy, risky, but also clever. Also very clever. If you guys, you know, especially if you guys uh, saw the half guard series that I posted, um, just how much that can be uh, utilized as far as creating scrambles uh, go. All right, Stormy K X N Z E Y. Why does my <laughs> breath smell of poop? I don't know why your breath your your breath smells of poop. Um, sorry, Storm, but uh, yeah, you guys, if you write ridiculous shit, like I probably will read it. I'm like Ron Burgundy. Like if you put it on the teleprompter, Burgundy will read it. Uh, I gotta stop saying that when I actually get some semblance of popularity. Otherwise, my shit will just be blown up with spam. Um, 
but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Spencer is live there. Okay, guys, uh, Ronda Rousey documentary, not much to say there, and it will tie into the leg lock talk as I'll go along here, guys. Again, I was smart. I, I cut out Weekly Rex for a reason. Um, the footage was really cool. They had some really cool footage that, forgive me if I'm wrong, I haven't seen in other places before. And for better or worse, uh, maybe worse in the sense that it didn't cast her in the, in the most positive light, but I'm not going to pile on. Uh, the the negative Rousey train for that, um, but this you know uh, when I say that, however, even though it doesn't paint her in the best light, I guess what I'm trying to say is I like it because I'm a fan of vulnerability and rawness and honesty, and human humanizing slash humanization, and I think that would have at the very least provided that, or it did. Who knows? Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. The problem was is even though they're getting really good like moments and um, like emotional moments, real moments from. Rhonda through like different parts of her career and through different states of, of, uh, you know, you know, she's clearly under the influence in certain parts of it. And I'm glad they left that in, but then you got like the cheesy component, which is like this Billy something. I forget. It's like this English boxer guy who's like, you forget that he's any type of boxer because all he's talking about is, um, all he's talking about is like, uh, like, well, not even talking about it. he's talking about R Rousey, but he's using the same words over and over again. And he's doing that like they set up the Zach Morris, like uh, say by the bell beach shot, like over and over again. And what I mean by that, if you watch say by the bell, whenever they did the, the beach episodes, whatever conflict would go down in the episode would always be solved by Zach Morris going out to the beach and sitting and just kind of gazing on the water. And whoever he was having a conflict with would magically show up and go, you know, Zach, it's going to be OK. Yeah. It is going to be okay. And they go to the next episode. Like this guy was doing that scene. Like the production, I should say, they were setting up this guy with that scene over and over again. Like he was just doing, like, he was just like mm, pondering. Yes, yes, I'm looking very pondering here. And not trying to do a terrible accent to offend my brothers across the pond uh, by any means. But I'm just saying, like, this dude was just like, I'm like, okay, is this, who is this about? Like, are you shooting like a, are you trying to shoot some kind of GQ ad here? Like, it was just like, why are we holding on? the shots of this guy walking off. Like, it, like, is this about you? Is this about like, it felt like, uh, you know, this was directed by, a, you know, this was like the lost tapes of, uh, God damn it. Wow. Dan, don't reference things. You can't remember. You just look like an idiot. Big guy. Hawaii. Good show. Hey, how's it? John Rico. Hey buddy. I gave you a shout earlier in the show, John, John. All right. And you were here just in time for some grappling talk, because one of the things I liked about the Ronda Rousey doc documentary again was the footage, but more specifically the highest stand footage. Um, you got to see Go Korchevichian, uh, Caro, Manny, um, and, and, you know, just some really, you know, again, some really good footage and stuff from those days because before everybody, you know, associates Edmund and head movement, head movement and all that fun stuff. We all like, you know, I write that whole fun chapter of her career, but she came up through highest stand and, and again, even though I'm not trying to jump on the Ronda Rousey crap party, like I'll be, I'll be honest. Like I'm not like, I never really was like the, the biggest Rousey fan. However, I do and have always respected her because we actually share uh, grappling, uh, a grappling uh, lineage uh, through Hayastan. Um, Of course, you know she trained there with Caro and, and Gokor and these guys, and that's where my grappling uh, coach or one of my main grappling coaches have been lucky enough to train under. Um, a lot of people like the late great Robert Fallis, a little bit under Drysdale, uh, who I still use Drysdale's Mount Escape to this day, like I learned in 2008. But like my, the main coach was Neil Melanson, and Neil's a lot of catch wrestling, a lot of leg locks, which we're going to talk about here because he came from a leg locking school on highest end. Um, you know, some, you know, 
I don't want to quote him and I don't want to incriminate. I mean, this is over 10 years ago, but like, but let's just say someone may go to that gym back in the day. I mean, this, this was a hardcore grappling school, folks. I mean, you got uh, Gene LaBelle as well with ties here. Gene LaBelle, of course, the judo stuntman legend. But it wasn't just a movie guy. Like, he really put people to sleep. There are stories of him putting uh, some stars to sleep. You can just go look on the internet for yourself for some different accounts there. And uh, really, Gene LaBelle was just a psychopath who, you know, if he had, by the way, folks, if, if I don't know if Gene's still alive doing seminars, but like, if he asks you, can I choke you out? Uh, for the for, for for the demo, don't because he will choke you out. Like Gene gets off on it, and he, I mentioned that because he got along well with High Stand and Gokor, and that school was a very rough school. Again, I don't want to quote any names here, but let's just say you could show up there for the first day, and they may go for a leg lock. We're about to talk about here, and and snap something to test if you uh, really want to do this grappling thing. You really really want to learn this grappling thing, yeah. Not very fun and definitely did not help uh, in some ways as far as the reputation of leg locks and keeping that S away from our schools as far as the um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu standpoint of it. And I'm not knocking Brazilian jiu-jitsu or their stance. Uh, it's just this kind of fun – it's kind of funny culture war. Um, the gi bias versus the no gi bias, you know. Um, you know, you go, you go back to Helio Gracie even talking about – I forget what the word he used in the quote, but something like unsophisticated technique. I mean – very uh, nose in the air to leg locks, right? Um, and even till today, you can't use leg locks until you get to purple belt or, or not even purple, like brown belt, I believe, in a lot of tournaments. That's why, like, um, if you notice that, like, me and me and our grappling team uh, with Neil, uh, we would do Nagas a lot because Nagas allowed, allowed neck cranks and leg locks and all the mean catch wrestling stuff that uh, I love about grappling. Um, and if you notice that that video that I edited, whether it was all the grapplers that weren't me or the video that I shared of me, most of the victories there were by what? Were by heel hook and leg locks. Um, and, you know, even though it was making kind of a renaissance around then, like I believe that video was in 2011 and my that last grappling tournament I did was in 2014. It's kind of around the time where you kind of have the modern day, if you want to say it, renaissance of leg locks. Um, not, not so much in MMA, although we do see them, and I will cite some examples from that time. But in grappling in general, I mean, there's like stats out there, I believe. Like, okay, so we just said 2011, right? ADCC, of course, one of the king prominent no-gi grapplings. If you look at like ADCC 2011 and 2013, I think you're getting like upwards of 39 to 40% of the finishes by the competitors in those tournaments. Uh, we're all by leg locks or some type of leg lock submission. So you're kind of, you kind of see this rise, um, there around that time. And, uh, and yeah, so, uh, again, I, I was, I was lucky enough to kind of come from somebody who came from that school of, of kind of hard knocks and, and, and really good, uh, leg lock and grappling knowledge. I mean, even if you just go back and watch, you know, Carl's early fights, um, and the things that he was doing. Uh, was really you could see why he got by with with so little striking, and I'm not knocking on Carl by saying that. It's just it, it's what it was, right? Um, and uh, but but again, their judo wasn't just judo. Even though Carl, they, they also you know you also heard Rogan talk about on the broadcast is judo accolades, tossing grown men on his head, and you know tossing tossing people in fights, and he did that, and that was fun, and that's great. Not hating on that, but. What's not talked about is more the kind of the nawaza of the, ju the judo, you know, uh, the submission fighting uh, aspect of it, different parts of, you know, different parts of judo, nagewaza, nawaza, so on and so forth. I'm sorry. 
it's been a while. You can't I've uh, been tested on these. But uh, but everyone from Highestan, where, where Rousey came from, could, could really grapple their ass off, man. And uh, so that was cool seeing that footage. And um, and yeah, judo is kind of funny though because again, now as we're talking about leg locks, there's there's that bias that goes all the way back from you know Helio Gracie's time to even again we mentioned judo on the other side of judo where where kind of jujitsu comes from, right? Um, we're following the lineage back to Japan here. Um, I mean, even, you know, judo, I guess, reg regimentation, if you will, it started kind of getting regimented more in the 1900s. And in 1925, on the judo side of things, you start seeing discrimination against leg locks because I believe it's either 1924 or 25. Again, folks, I don't have the notes in front of me. It's been a while since I did my, my Cuban judo article. But judo itself bans leg locks, right? I mean, and again, every, everyone, you know, just like MMA, right? They're going to uniforms. They're trying to get, they're trying to get that sponsorship, be more recognized. I guess you could say judo was doing its own version, albeit they don't really even get officially recognized by the Olympics till 1964, which again, don't quote me, uh, which again, don't, don't, don't quote me on this, but, uh, but yeah, I believe judo doesn't become an Olympic sport till 1964. Of course, there's much more regulations by that time you know there, there are some missions but whether you're talking about leg locks that are disallowed or the attack times on how long they have to attack you get all these rules start coming into play i'm the wrong guy to ask about this point is no matter you know even outside of mma uh even in the grappling centric uh, even within the grappling centric uh, martial arts there's always been a very high discrimination against leg locks and it's very interesting because leg locks is one of the few submissions where a white belt can tap a black belt now that most some of you are like what what is what's he talking about? Those of you who grapple, are going, even if you hate leg locks, are going yeah. There's some truth to that. There is that pin in the ass leg lock guy who back in the day would be watching the VHS tapes, learning all the leg locks, all the Japanese uh, shoot matches and stuff, and then they started taking it over and going into jujitsu schools, and they got kicked out real fast. Like I remember even when like I was training. Uh, this is probably actually one of my membership ran out. Cause like I, it was so expensive to train at Marcelo's or anywhere in New York for that matter. Marcelo's is a great gym, nothing against them. I'm just saying it was too expensive to train when I lived in New York. But luckily at that time I networked with enough of the grapplers. Uh, I was able to go and do like apartment sessions where guys would have like mats set up and whatnot. But I just remember like grappling even Nogi um, with these people. And I, I'm a really good grappling partner is one of the few good things I can say about myself. I don't reap things or anything like that, but yeah, I'll go for leg locks or create scrambles from half guard using a leg lock to create said scramble. And even when you would do that with control, like people was like, Whoa, 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 dude. Like it was like, you pulled a knife out uh, in the middle of the rolling session. I was like, Whoa, dude, cool, cool. Be cool. Be cool. Be cool. Like that's how that, like that was still kind of the reaction you were getting. Like not that long ago when it came to leg locks. Um, so so it, 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 it's 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 always a it's always a, a tricky thing, which is why they don't even allow it at a certain extent. You know, like again, usually at brown belt level, right? You don't start messing with it. Whereas, you know, coach like mine, you know, Melanson, he didn't really go by uh, belts because it was no gi, but he did award us stripes to kind of give us a place in the grappling community. And um, we weren't we couldn't even get our our purple stripe, which was you know again blue, purple, brown, black, same as Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. He wouldn't award purple the rank of purple um, unless you were proficient in leg locks. So. He went at it kind of asked backwards and people would look down on that. And don't get me wrong, got my knees popped a bunch of times. And there are a lot more injuries at leg lock schools. Uh, leg lockers are going to suffer a lot more injuries. These criticisms are somewhat facts. I'm not going to deny those. But at the same time, um, 
you really see the difference on people that know how to use them. They can really be ahead of their game. I know I've talked about Frank Shamrock to death. When you look at, look at him kind of using him, when I was talking about his fight with Tito Ortiz, that legendary one, you see Frank using the leg locks to create scrambles and such. I mean, but, you know, you look at where Frank was competing a lot in Pancrase in Japan. Um, and again, J Japanese, you know, from Carl Gotch, they got a lot of their influence through, uh, was catch wrestling for their pro wrestling war shoots and, and catch wrestling. So they had a lot of leg locks in their style. Therefore, Pancrase, one of the early MMA outfits and outlets in the 90s, uh, first worldwide, but especially in Japan. We saw a lot of leg locks there. Remember that? There's all that classic scene. Was it Frank Frank Shamrock and Boss Rutten? And they're kind of like almost in their own like 50-50 variation. And they're slapping each other. And Frank's making the faces at them. Like, like so 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 he was able to take those those things and, and take them over, you know, at a time of mixed martial arts where he was one of the first. People were only just starting to actually mix the martial arts in the late 90s. And Frank was able to use, you know, of course, with other knowledge, striking, athleticism, etc. It wasn't just the leg locks, folks. But he was able to use that and kind of uh, get ahead of the game. You start getting guys like Dean Lister, of course, uh, you know, back in the 2003 ADCC, really kind of, you know, um, staking his claim and his style. Uh, hold on, I want to get to a, a rousy question before we move on and get out of here from the leg locks. Settle it once and for all, John Atlas says. Did Rousey duck Cyborg? Man, I'm the wrong person to ask that. Um if you want to ask me who do I think would have won when they were talking about it? Um, I think I honestly would have gone with cyborg at the time and hindsight. It's a lot easier to pick the fight. Um, it's a lot easier to critique Rousey. So I think I would feel better about my cyborg pick, but if I'm being honest, yeah, I think a lot of people may switch their pick over time, but I still would have picked cyborg back then. Um, so yeah, it, Eric Gurdon, do you think Josh Strobel is the father of Kaya? Boy, you're catching me with my pants down um, uh, as far as that goes. Uh, I am the wrong person to ask about Josh Strobel and as far as being the founder of Kaya. Although I did, you did remind me, Eric, of a note I did have here as far as the judo and leg lock talk as to why like judokas like Hector Lombard was so good at going Ashigarami and whatnot. It's because Cuban judo... Uh, back to my previous note, when judo was was outlawing shit, like they're outlawing leg locks in 1925, like Cuba was going through its own re renaissance. In fact, you know, you mentioned Helio Gracie. Of course, we all know uh, he learned from Mitsuyo Maeda, who was a judo guy, and he was traveling. Uh, he actually stopped. At, he actually stopped in Cuba before he got to Brazil and gave it to the Gracies. Uh, of course, he was there. I believe it was through like catch wrestling and traveling circus shows. But there were other guys like uh, Morita uh, Shigatoshi with Ryu Jiu Jitsu who brought it over there. And again, he had more of um, a unique style as well as, as well as uh, Andreas uh, Kolichkin. Apologies if I mispronounce the name, but that, this guy is, is a Belgian gentleman. And uh, he is kind of, uh, that's who you reminded me of, Eric, because he's credited as being the godfather of Cuban judo. And all these people, including Maeda, you know, kind of gave a certain rhythm and flow for their Neda Nege Waza, a certain flow to their, you know, Katame Waza and judo, Cuban judo, just like Cuban boxing, like all the sports that cross Cuba. Uh, I haven't gone deep in a Taekwondo despite being a Taekwondo guy, believe it or not. I'm sure they have uniqueness to their styles there as well. But Cuba that always has a unique twang to their combat sports. And that's kind of the main names you want to look up as to why they have a unique twang of judo and why guys like Hector Lombard were able to be. It's not just such submission grapplers, but really good with Ashi Garami, really good with the leg uh, with a specific style of leg locks. Um, 
All right. Uh, top grapplers of today, you know, I just mentioned, I just wanted to mention the Don Hurd death squad. Obviously, you know, I, I'm talking about highest stand from early in the days, as far as like leg lock guys and leg lock gyms. Now the more popular kind of the more new school and nothing against high stand. They think they got a location out here in Las Vegas. Now I would love to go to, if they're still up, uh, hopefully they are. And, and once all this stuff's over, but uh, the Don Hurd death squad, of course, over there in the East coast, you, got, you know, Gary Tonin, Gordon Ryan, those likes. My favorite guy was always Eddie Cummins. I think he's been more low-key in recent years. I haven't followed him or the grappling scene, but I always love Eddie Cummings' leg locks. And I know I'm supposed to be talking about leg locks in MMA, but I feel like leg lock guys in MMA could learn a lot from Eddie Cummings because part of the reason with positions that are controversial that I love, whether they're leg locks or the turtle position, is the key to them is you have to know the position. You have to keep moving, keep moving. And it's really to keep easy to keep moving when you're like a master tactician with leg locks like Eddie Cummings. Like Eddie Cummings, like if leg locks are an you know an M60 machine gun, and you know uh, and and uh, the leg locks are the bullet chains. Like Eddie Cummings has like a whole strip of bullets he loads in, and he can just pop, 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 chain, 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 chain. I mean, it is sick watching his transitions. Uh, one of my one of one of my one of my favorite. Um, John Rico, Eddie is amazing to watch. John John Rico, a grappler down there, at Kings MMA, he knows what's up. Uh, so he's signing off on it. I appreciate that. Benny App says that inside Senkaku, yes, position that the Donna Her Death Squad guys use should transition well to MMA. MMA, I agree with I agree with that. Um, inside Senkaku, um, or uh, what's the other position called? I forget. But these are essentially like variations of the Ashigurami, uh, whereas essentially. Uh, in layman's or trying to be simplistic on a YouTube stream here. If you've got two legs, if we're talking about Ryan Hall, who I wanted to mention Ryan Hall outside, of course, going inverted or that sweet Imanari that he hit on BJ Penn. Uh, Ryan Hall is a guy who plays 50, 50. So you're kind of in more toward the hips as I do this, which I know it's going to immediately incite scissoring jokes. But as far as the 50, 50 goes, whereas inside Sekeku or Ashigarami variations, you're kind of attaching more to one leg. Um, and the reason why, at least I'm going to guess why uh, Benny Abs is saying that the inside Senkaku should translate to MMA is because if done right, you are off balancing and putting your opponent in a, in some precarious positions. Um, and then, of course, whether you're attacking the heel or you know the inside heel hook and stuff like that. I mean, you, if you're like some of these guys that really know how to put it on, it's going to come on fast. But a big key, which people mention to their blue in the face, but people don't seem to get get is controlling. Uh, both legs, like, you know, um, Imanari roll, for people that don't know, it comes from, a, there's an actual guy, uh, Imanari, Mazu, ah, God damn it, as I was, I'm about to, yeah, let's school the people, and as you stumble and fall on your face, trying to say Mazukasu, uh, Imanari, as I probably mispronounced and brutalized the gentleman's name, but I mean, but this guy was, like, submitting dudes who I loved back in the day, like Yoshiro Maedo, you see him fighting dudes like uh, uh, Mishima, who, who fought Florian in the UFC, um, he's, he's got a sweet submission over Mike Brown and deep. Uh, but it, when you see him go for his, it, 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 you know, you roll or go for his heel hooks, a lot of times he's subtly controlling the opposite leg and he's debasing that. Uh, if you want a more modern example, in fact, go watch, go back and watch one of the last fights the UFC had Charles Oliveira versus Kevin Lee. 
Um, I can't hit, I can't remember off the top of my head on what positions he's hitting as far as if he's hitting textbook inside Senkaku's or, or 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 whatnot. But what you will see is Charles Oliveira's whatever leg is attacking. You'll notice he's debasing the opposite leg. Debasing means debalancing without balance. It's hard to have offense and much less defense. You're really juggling to trying to get some semblance of either. Um, keeping your opponents off balance is always great, which is why just if you're going to attack leg locks or if you're going to go from like a K control or a K guard, which we don't see much of those in MMA either. Like Carlos Condit was the only dude kind of flashing it a little bit, but I love K control for people who uh, know knows what those are. But that's also you, you've got triangles and like uh, triangles and arm bars from there, but it's a very leg lock centric guard that's based off. You're getting a deep leg hook and you're really shoving your knees. You've got a wrist control to control the mitigate the ground and pound. And you're really shucking and off balancing your opponent. I just feel like whatever position you're going from, you need to always move from these controversial positions from turtles or leg locks. These, these quote unquote negative positions by tradition, you have to move and know where you're moving. Obviously easier said than done, but off balancing is a key, even in turtle too. I mean, um, you got to move, you got to bump to off balance or even move and making your opponent just adjust is not necessarily a form of off balancing, but you're definitely buying yourself time to get to, uh, get to your closing move. Uh, all right. You should also be far enough away that they can't punch you again. Yeah. Being far enough away that they can't punch you. It's tough. Um, but that's also the beauty of off balancing. Um, it just, it's just kind of your preference on how you want to do it. Like Ryan Hall has got some great videos out there as far as his principles and, and fighting from a 50, 50 guard on how to do it from there. Again, you're a little closer in on the hips, but that also provides you with a little more uh, tipping leverage. Right. Um, whereas again, if you're doing it correctly, you're dropping back for these Ashigaramis, you're going to be risking a lot. Um, but if, if you're doing it correctly, if you're inside Senkeku, you're doing it correctly, you should be off balancing and putting your opponent in some kind of precarious position. And ideally, right? You want to get the you want to get the uh, you want to get the tap. Masakasu, thank you, John John John, John Rico. Again, it's proof that um, uh, not only am I an idiot, but I do this stuff uh, off notes. So whatever good I do is off notes, and whatever bad I do, I'm gonna blame it on being off notes. God damn it! All right, 57. We are not gonna go over an hour, so I'm gonna wrap up this leg lock talk. Um, let me see. Uh, oh yeah, he beat Gurgel and Nam Fam as well. Uh, back in the day, go look those up, folks. Uh, for Imanari, he's just, just, just a. He's, he kind of reminds me of Sakuraba because he he didn't have like some like he's a fourth degree judoka. He was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He was a Japanese jiu-jitsu. Like, dude came from pro wrestling, and he's sitting there and, and mixing it up. You know, he's even got like a really good fight with uh, what's who's that guy they gave uh, Geishi that really deceptively tough fight in WSOF, Luis Firmino. Like, go back and watch that Pride fight. That one's on on Fight Pass, and you see Firmino almost take his head off, like with knees because again there are defenses for leg locks and one of the more risky but uh, not low percentage but boy does it, does it pay off when it does is a knee and you see you know Joaquim Hellboy Hansen take note of that and he knees the crap out of Imanari later but go catch up on that folks um Husamar Pajarez of course he got beat by Hector Lombard Lombard did not look like he was worried at all about the leg locks, which I kind of explained why. I mean, the rich, rich history he comes from as far as Cuban judo and that lineage. Um, I totally forgot, though, speaking of those ADCC leg locks in 2011, one of them was uh, Husamar Falhira subbing Rafael Lovato Jr., which was pretty crazy. I mean, Lovato Jr. is the truth. And uh, shouts to Lovato Jr. Hopefully he gets well. Um, 
So I mentioned Imanari and rolling for Imanari rolls. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, like I forget, I was listening to a conversation and they were talking about techniques that you think work and people go for them continually, even though they don't work. Um, boy, I don't want people to come at me because uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of Tenth Planet uh, Jiu Jitsu, uh, Casey Halstead, all my Tenth Planet brothers and sisters. But I was surprised that the rubber guard, as far as for inside MMA goes, seeing that we don't see more success for that, but. People were criticizing the Imanari role, most of all, and leg locks. Again, very, very strong bias against leg locks. And the thing is, kind of like I was talking about, whether it was Frank Shamrock or Matt Brown and more modern-day examples, guys who necessarily aren't grapplers, by you know coming from these crazy lineages, using leg locks in an MMA sense to create scrambles, which I think is the biggest takeaway for detractors of the leg locks. It's not even about getting the leg locks. Um, I will even point to the example of Tony Ferguson versus Edson Barbosa. Uh, I think in the first like opening 30 seconds of the fight, he rolls for an Imanari. It does an Imanari roll and does that, you know, high hip body. I think he might even triangle his legs off at a certain point. Don't quote me here, but he's using that deep underhook and that leverage to just wham, reverse hammer fists, elbows block. And he's using his Wing Chun principles uh, to really outhand fight. Edson Barbosa barely could get any shots off, even though he was in the quote unquote advantageous position. Uh, but we have it so burnt into our heads because we see so many bad leg locks in MMA. I wrote this for an example, John Lineker versus Ali Bagutinov. Again, John, you go back to that, Lineker, who was never a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu specialist anyways. And I think he was only maybe even like a blue belt at that time, right? Um, he's Again, he's on one leg. He's hugging one leg, and he's expecting to get it done against a Sambo wrestler guy like uh, Ali Bagutinov. So, of course, Ali Bagutinov was laughing. Um, and you hear the commentary, rightfully so, especially within this context of the match going, see, this is what leg locks get you. They get you hit in the face. Well, not necessarily. Go look at guys like Tony Ferguson versus Edson Barbosa. While known for his triangles, Paul Sass had some solid leg locks. He submitted Michael Johnson. I remember that heel hook. That was a sweet heel hook. That's a sweet call. Paul Sass, he was like a Liverpudley and a Garth from uh, Wayne's World. He just was like, I, I, I forgot he had the sweet uh, Till accent. But he was so soft-spoken. He's such a humble guy. You know, at least seems so in the, the post-fight interview. Like, Rogan freaking out. Like, you just got a sweet submission, Paul Sass. How do people not see this coming? And Paul Sass essentially does like the Garth from Wayne's. He's like, huh, yeah, I like the play. <laughs> like, it was essentially just felt like that. But good shout there, Paul Sass. All right, we're going to get out of here. That was some fun. Um, that was some fun leg lock talk for me. I could talk leg locks and martial arts history all day but i'm afraid work must intrude and i'm gonna get out of here thanks for sticking with me for the long episode thanks for re-watching us again subscribe to the protect your neck podcast follow us on all social media platforms at the pyn podcast won't spam your feed follow me at dan tom mma look for my upcoming work at mmajunkie.com where you can find all my analysis work there and visit mixedmartialanalyst.com to see all the rest as well as if you want to support this crazy show and channel plenty of links for amazon and all that fun stuff there that I'm not even going to bother finishing the plug. Uh, I'll see you guys for a top five show this coming week. Going to have uh, Brad from the MMA Analysis on. We're going to do our top five WEC fights. You know, I'm going to be stoked for that. So I'll see you guys this weekend. And until next time, protect. Tech-